0: Okay, today my guest is Professor Hilde Teigen. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Hilde as a person. Professor Teigen is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of her accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Teigen is a member of the AIB, the AOM and the Business Sustainability Advisory Panel of the International Finance Corporation of the World Bank Group. She was a member of the Continuous Improvement Review Committee and the Globalization of Business Education Task Force of the Association for the Advancement of Collegiate Schools of Business and the co-author of the Globalization of Management Education Report of the AACSB. She is a recognized expert in teaching negotiations, interactions between multinational firms, governments, and non-governmental organizations. She's a director on several corporate boards. She's a Liberty Fellow and a member of the Aspen Global Leadership Network. Gilded served as department editor in uh, Institutions and Comparative Capitalism for JIBS. She was an editorial board member for Journal of International Management, and she was a founding executive board member of the Women of the AIB. In 2015, she co-founded Harbor Good a marketplace solution for social purpose organizations to mobilize their communities around next generation philanthropy. Uh, thank you, Hilde, for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Great to be with you today.
0: Thanks. So uh, first question, what did you want to become when you were a child?
1: You know, I'd probably, um, if, I, if I were to have to pick one career, it probably would have been to be a teacher. Um, I was the eldest of three children, and uh, my younger siblings are quite a bit younger than I am. And uh, I was always very eager to be the boss and uh, was, was happy to, to be able to share things with them uh, growing up. And so I think I probably was always interested in education as a career. Where did you grow up? Well, uh, I was born outside of Chicago. And I uh, lived there until about midway through elementary school, and then my family moved to Grand Cayman in the Caribbean, uh, which was a pretty radical radical shift from cold and snowy Chicago. Um, my father was uh, and continues to be a, a diehard entrepreneur and uh, decided at one point that he would sell his contracting business and move the entire family to start a commercial farm in the caribbean
0: wow uh, well i don't want to normally i ask about the earliest moment of awareness between international and domestic but obviously uh, I, I i have the answer on that one yeah but how did you choose to be a scholar uh, an iv scholar
1: yeah um that was really a little more accidental uh, i was very fortunate as an undergraduate at the university of texas to have as a faculty member, uh, while I was studying finance and international business, Dr. Robert Green, who many in the IB community know well. And uh, during that undergraduate program, I'd say I was probably in my junior year, uh, I had a course with him and he began a pretty heavy recruitment process into uh, the PhD program. And at the time I was working full-time, going to school, Uh, The thought of continuing in education seemed pretty remote, uh, both in terms of economically viable and in terms of just my my energy and interest level. Uh, But he was fairly relentless in his recruitment. Uh, I graduated as an undergraduate. I worked for several months as a consultant. Uh, And then my boyfriend at the time, now my husband, glad to say, Uh, And I decided that it was time for us to spread our wings a bit and to explore the world. We realized that as our professional and personal commitments got a little bit more advanced, uh, we probably wouldn't have that same flexibility and freedom to explore. So we sold everything that we owned and bought around the world plane tickets and traveled for six months. And uh, upon returning with a a wonderful storehouse of experiences and uh, certainly great stories to tell, Uh, we realized that we needed to get serious about what sort of the next uh, path would be for us in terms of our careers. My husband had been in the building and real estate investing trade before, and he sort of doubled down on that uh, in Austin, Texas. And I reached back out to Robert Green just to, sort of check in with him and see how things were going, really not to follow up on his uh, prior recruitment efforts, but he said, you know, you, you really got nothing else going on right now. Why don't you just take a few classes, take the GMAT, see if this might be something that would be of interest to you. And so I really sort of eased into being a doctoral student back at the University of Texas recognized that uh, graduate study was very different than undergraduate study, but I liked it a great deal. Um, So I just got turned on by sort of the academic pursuit. Um, My area of focus as an undergraduate had been Latin America. I also had a degree in Latin American studies and being in a place like Austin, Texas, and this was in the late eighties, right as the uh, run up to the NAFTA agreement was underway, it was a pretty heady time to be thinking about international business. And I recognized that there was a lot of opportunity for a young scholar to be able to uh, take advantage of some language skill that I had and some area studies expertise, to be able to begin to craft a research program related to something that was phenomenologically very very important and uh, potentially quite impactful in terms of the economy of the US and and our neighboring countries. So that's what really sort of locked it down for me was sort of the the pairing between the interest in pursuing the study uh, intellectually with a recognition that there were important and timely questions that, my my newly developed expertise would be helpful in terms in in terms of our making advances around
0: perfect uh, something that is not on your cv that people might find interesting
1: something that's not on my cv um what's not on my cv and and probably relates not i wouldn't say to sort of a, an earth-shattering regret that i have but um, if I had it to do all over again and, and were not to pursue an academic life, I may have gone in more in a direction of pursuing the, the uh, creative side of my interests and my passions. I love to dance. I like to paint. Um, I, I feel very inspired by nature. And uh, oftentimes I, I think about in those, you know, Moments when you're working on the fourth revision of a paper that doesn't seem to ever want to get over the hurdle or uh, grading that 50th student essay. I I often think about what would it have been like to have been a professional dancer or a visual artist. Um, But those are now just hobbies and, and passions of mine, but not certainly things that I've attended to professionally.
0: Do you actually allocate time for these uh, pursuits, like dancing?
1: I do. do. Fortunately, uh, I have a partner in my husband who also loves to dance, and so we dance regularly, both out of the house and sometimes just in the living room, so that's good fun. Uh, In terms of visual arts, I, I probably attended that a little bit less than I'd like to.
0: Perfect. Very interesting. So uh, what was your biggest failure and what did you learn from it?
1: Yeah, I think probably the, the, the thing that I've had the most regret over in terms of a failure, um, I mentioned a moment ago when I was an undergraduate, I was actually working full-time and that was born of economic necessity. But I often chose jobs that were very satisfying in terms of They helped me to pay the bills and or they gave me a secure roof over my head. I was a leasing agent, for instance, at an apartment complex for a while. Uh, Instead of of taking the time and effort to be a little bit more purposeful, even in those lower engagement kinds of uh, job opportunities I had as a younger person, I wished that I had uh, really been more careful in the selections that I had made in trying to find opportunities that would really better leverage things that I was distinctively good at, as opposed to just finding ways to pay the bills. Uh, and I think that 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 collection of experiences really taught me that um, you know, life is too short to feel like you're sort of selling out on what really matters to you or what you feel is, is really um, most consistent with where you can be at, at highest and best use. And so I've tried throughout the rest of my professional career to make choices that were, that were a little bit more thoughtful and were a little bit more purposeful in terms of thinking about what can Hilde Tegan be doing that is distinctive vis-a-vis what others who might be similarly positioned to me, the kinds of contributions they might make. And so I passed on opportunities that others might have seen as being really exciting or really valuable. And I think equally as important, I took advantage of opportunities that were a little bit outside of the box, but ended up proving to be, at least for me, uh, very rewarding in terms of growth, very rewarding, I felt in terms of the difference or the impact that I could have. And so I, I think that while I have some regrets about those early times when I was an undergraduate and doing jobs that felt a little uh, a little meaningless other than just paying the bills, I think that it it really planted in me this recognition of the need to be. Really, quite
0: thoughtful in terms of what you say yes to and what you say no to. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I I hear you. I understand. I feel it. I feel exactly the same way foresight, hindsight uh, uh, distinction. But, uh, you know, everything teaches us something. And, you know, I remember an interview with Peter Leach, and uh, he was talking about uh, the time in the farm on the farm, on a tractor. And I'm thinking it's clearly teaching you something. I I just don't know what. Clearly it's not related to regression, running regressions or uh, thinking about theory of the firm, but uh, we're learning all the time. Mm -hmm. So um, about uh, uh, the the personal uh, segment, uh, what are you most passionate about? What's the biggest goal that you have set in front of you? Uh, What's ahead of you right now?
1: Yeah, I think both goal and trying to, uh, to build from the work that I've been fortunate to be involved with all sort of relate to this question of trying to envision a society within which all of us are able to meet our fullest potential, uh, regardless of political or legal or cultural, or economic current reality blockages, um, I, I feel as though that's what I'm most passionate about. How do we how do we envision a society and how do we make moves individually through whatever pursuit we've chosen um, professionally and or personally, to really honor the capacity and the potential in each of us as individuals to be able, to have a brighter future. Um, I've been very fortunate to, to travel widely. I've uh, been incredibly privileged to be able to live in different places around the world, oftentimes in places that don't enjoy the same standard of living that we enjoy here in the US. Um, and it's it, it's truly heart-wrenching to see um, that that individuals find themselves in owing to no fault of their own and uh, for me i'm i'm passionate about trying to understand how i through my teaching and through my my scholarship and and certainly through my service obligations how i can really bring my intellect and my passion to bear to trying to find new models and new ways of thinking about how we can open open passages and open doorways for folks that otherwise feel closed out from from bringing their fullest selves and from having an opportunity to be able to thrive and to prosper.
0: Okay, let's say you're stranded in a in a cafe uh, or uh, a pub in one of these type of places that you just mentioned and you know locals are they don't know anything about you. They don't know you're a professor. Uh, how do you explain your research to them? How do they explain the importance of your research?
1: Yeah, typically what I would do, and, and I found myself in similar circumstances, maybe not at a pub per se, but um, among individuals who are not typically tapped into an academic way of thinking um, or even, tapped into sort of understanding what international business is even about. And I typically would use it as a starting place, what are the things that are getting in the way of your having a fulfilled life? It might be someone in the Dominican Republic talking about their inability to get reliable electricity so that they can have lights on in the evening so that their children can study when they come home at the end of the day of, of school and to be able to do their homework. Or it might be someone in Peru who recognizes that ancestral lands that are cherished and, and held in high esteem are coming under threat because of decisions that are being made around water flows and or mining activities. And by focusing on issues that seem to be barriers or obstructions in someone's life, that gives me an entry point to talk about the kind of work that I like to do, which is looking at problems that seem intractable, that seem unsolvable, um, that, that ultimately require a lot of different kinds of entities pulling together constructively in order to reach solutions. So looking at things like a situation of of extraction or or mining in in Peru, you know, these are are phenomena where you've got government agencies at every level, you've got citizens and community groups of, of different ethnic and racial makeup, You've certainly got business organizations from large multinational corporations all the way down to small local suppliers, all of whom play some sort of role in oftentimes creating the obstruction or the or the challenge to begin with, but certainly in terms of finding productive and, and mutually satisfactory solutions moving forward. And so I talk about how we can bring tools of negotiation tools of design thinking to bear in in helping each of these parties better recognize who the other critical stakeholders are, what their interests are, what their needs are, what their own limitations are in terms of building prospective solutions that can be more productive for all involved. So ultimately, um, helping people to recognize that social and economic development is a team sport. And for us to really change games in terms of um, prospects for the future for individuals, may, it may be the individual that I'm speaking with, that ultimately lots and lots of different kinds of parties have a role to play in terms of, of crafting these solutions. And, and my research is Largely been centered around these kinds of challenges and these kinds of interactions between firms, governments, non governmental organizations, and other um, members of civil society.
0: This was helpful. Uh, this was very good. Thank you. Now, about um, the omitted variables or neglected areas of research in IV. Uh, a patient comes to you says, you know, for the next five to 10 years, what do you think is going to be the uh, next wave? Uh, Yeah, obviously you're talking about different perspective of uh, uh, negotiating between constituents, you have a different uh, approach. Uh, What are some of the omitted variables, in your opinion, in IB research? I
1: promise I will revert to that question, but first I want to challenge the, the premise. So, a doctoral student comes to me and says, "What is the you know what are we thinking about? What should we be thinking about for the next five years?" I would stop them in their tracks right there and say, "That's probably the wrong question if If you as a young and emerging scholar are really interested in having a fulfilling and productive professional career in the academy, you need to ask yourself, what are the issues?" that really seem to matter most to you who are you as an individual and what are certain strengths that you might be able to bring to bear that would be applicable in the world of commerce investment trade interactions between constituents across borders and so less than you know trying to identify trends and waves i would say that Again, to be a productive scholar, you really need to be authentic to who you are and identify where there are challenges out there in the real world that you believe the existing base of literature is not not attending to sufficiently. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, really that comes in the form of recognizing that the game of international business isn't a game that is specifically exclusive to business organizations and absolutely not exclusive to just multinational corporations. I think that uh, international business as a body of work has overly attended to the multinational corporation and in particular its manifestation as a rather large, um, well-structured entity Not to say that those aren't important um, organizations that we need to have good awareness and understanding around, but we are absolutely ignoring um, so many important actors, so many of the important interactions that take place in, in my view, actually conditioning and predicting overall individual firm success and economic and social progress Um, And so I would argue that we as IB researchers and and scholars really, um, we owe it to ourselves, but more importantly, we owe it to the community and the society that gives us the great privilege of doing this thoughtful work um, to really attend more to trying to better map our research programs to the wholeness and the fullness of the phenomena as they exist in practice. I think with the recent uh, global pandemic, we have had the the great opportunity of recognizing the power of interconnectedness across borders, the extensiveness with which these connections play out. But we've also recognized and and it's somewhat laid bare how um, more popularly unaware uh, most folks are around how business and investment plays out across borders and how individuals' lives are impacted by this you know, supply chain dislocations a real obvious and, and, and clear example of that. Um, and I think that with our research if we if we think more carefully, not only about how do we rigorously and um, judiciously move forward on our specific research questions, but also robustly do it in ways that are understandable to the general public and to policymakers who are shaping the regulatory environments that are are, are either enabling or inhibiting uh, our ability as as, uh, researchers, but also the ability of firms as marketplace actors to bring their, their expertise and bring their resources to bear in terms of, of shaping a better future, I think that we're, we're missing opportunities.
0: Uh, I, I want to ask you about uh, what you think on interdisciplinary research and multidisciplinary research and about this um, evolution of IB uh, as a field yeah. uh, from where we were. and. Where we're we coming from, where we're we headed to. So, uh, what's your take on the evolution that we're going through?
1: Yeah. So I've been uh, at this game for a while now, and um, when I entered international business, you know, back in the late 1980s as a as a field, um, I was very fortunate to be working with a group of faculty who were. Uh, very open, and and very beyond very open. Uh, their expectations were such that um, a review of the literature included multiple literatures in understanding a particular problem at hand. You know that that while functional specialization is useful and helpful in many regards, that ultimately. For us as IB scholars to truly understand how the phenomena that we studied are are embedded in contexts as they roll out across the world, that we needed insights from not only economists, not only functional specialists in business, but sociologists, from political scientists, uh, from anthropologists, and so this this richness of um, Base understanding was drilled in me from a very early point in my career in terms of the value and the importance. It's been my sense as, as my, my, my own career has progressed that IB is a field, um, I think largely in terms of individual faculty members trying to seek legitimacy within their own institutions, have tended to. Um, not to a person, but in general, have tended to um, perhaps narrow their focus and work more intensively in ways that would be seen as, as acceptable and accepted by um, base functions within business, you know, be it within marketing or finance or strategic management or OB. Um, And I think often that has come at the expense of the richness of engagement of a variety of disciplines and and backdrops that could be brought into the work to make it not only more interesting, but I would argue more correct in terms of, of better mapping to the reality in the world of international business practice. Um, I feel very fortunate to be at my home institution now at the University of South Carolina that has been long committed to this more, both multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary approach to IB. You know, I, I count as my faculty collaborators in our group, folks who are trained in this wide variety of disciplines. And I am convinced that each of us uh, with our own specific research uh, programs and interests, our work has been made better by having regular conversations with colleagues who, who really have been um, have been normed, have been shaped, have been framed in terms of their thinking from a variety of of, of fields. And I think that um, I really wish that more more schools and, and more of us as scholars within the field would be more actively seeking and more um, demonstrably appreciative of the contributions uh, of scholars from, from other disciplines. Right.
0: Right. Now about uh, advice, I mean, obviously Robert Green had a huge impact on you and on how you formed your uh, initial opinions about about the field. Uh, but can you, uh, other than, or maybe even uh, uh, Bob Green, what was the best advice you received from your advisor or mentor uh, when you were going through the program? Yeah, I think
1: probably, um, I would again relate to Bob Green, but also reinforced by many throughout my career, uh, the idea that knowing something about somewhere in a deep and a profound way is what ultimately is going to make you the strongest scholar. And and let me try to, to expand on that a bit. When I was in the PhD program, I had mentioned that that the NAFTA negotiations were were sort of underway. And while I certainly was privy to media reports and had opportunities to speak to to business leaders in the US about what was going on uh, with regards to these nascent negotiations, it was clear that for me to be able to develop a research program around What ended up being around strategic alliances between Mexican and U.S. firms in the run-up to and subsequent uh, to the, the formation of the NAFTA agreement, that ultimately I had to learn a heck of a lot more about Mexico and Mexican business and the fears and hopes and dreams of people on that side of the border, in addition to what I was beginning to to understand about my home context. And that is not easily gained insight. Um, You have, you have to be there, you have to spend a lot of time on the ground and you have to spend a lot of time talking to a lot of different kinds of people who will have different perspectives around the phenomenon. And then you take that, those, those insights and you can weave them t- together into your own, you know, beginning place of an understanding of, of why this phenomenon is important. And what is it about this context that is shaping um, views and perspectives that ultimately have to get translated into these firm strategies in order for them to be successful. So for me, that took the form of, you know, about I think my second year in the doctoral program, actually pausing my studies at UT and going down to de Monterey and teaching a class in Spanish. It was my first time teaching ever. Um, I remember the, the, the painful experience of writing out every single word of every single lecture. Uh, for fear of, of saying it incorrectly, because while I was a good student of Spanish in a classroom sense, I realized very quickly, it's a different different animal when you're teaching it. Um, and using that opportunity of being on the ground in an in industrial center like Monterrey, and taking advantage of extraordinary corporate context that an institution like Tec de Monterey enjoyed to be able to, to begin to get inside the heads of those business leaders that were actually on the the forefront of forging some of these nascent alliances to begin to understand why they were seeking certain kinds of structures or what kinds of concerns they had about um, proposed insertions or deletions from working uh, language in the, the NAFTA agreement, et cetera. And so you know, that early experience gave me the opportunity to have an institutional arrangement with Tec de Monterrey that enabled me then to continue to return to Mexico. At one point in time, early in my career, when I was a a young assistant professor at William & Mary, I was flying to Monterrey, Mexico every two weeks to teach in their executive program via satellite to something like 14 of their campuses around the country. Uh, with executives, and that gave me ongoing access to firms and their leaders and what they were thinking about. Um, but it, you know, it it came at, at great personal cost, right, to be doing that kind of intensive traveling while you're also trying to establish a career as a young, a young faculty member in her first job in the U.S. Uh, out of the Ph.D. program. But uh, those are the kinds of, of moves that I think and and the advice that I was given that you know to to really do the work well you've got to really understand what you're working on and very little of international business understanding in my opinion comes from the desk. I think the things that have been the most profound in terms of my own understanding and learning have come through experiencing not firsthand but at least alongside of those who are experiencing firsthand um, these different activities or, or initiatives that they're playing out. Uh,
0: Hilda you, you covered the junior faculty and the PhD students very well, uh, the advice portion. Uh, about mid-career, mid-career uh, colleagues, uh, people after tenure, uh, what's yeah. your advice on, uh, on mid-career scholars?
1: You know, in my experience, most folks, once they, um, they've been tenured and they're, they're entering their mid-career, they have been imprinted based on what they've done their first six or so years in their academic career. And I think oftentimes that's a pity because you know for for many they still have decades of a career to build moving forward coupled with the extraordinary luxury at least in in many institutions where where we call ourselves professionally at home of tenure you know of of a tenured position and so my advice to mid-career folks is you know you did what you did to get tenure and that's great, congratulations. It's a big achievement. You should feel very, very good about that achievement. Uh, But if you feel as though you had to make sacrifices, either in terms of the kinds of questions you were studying or the methodologies you were choosing to deploy because you felt as though those were the safer choices for ensuring that you would get the recognition in the field to get tenure, you know, now's the time for you to regroup and to really double down on asking yourself, you know, what am I distinctively good at? And more importantly, what does the world need me to be working on? You know, is it the the, the role of an international business scholar to help the public writ large understand why commercial and investment connections between countries can be very powerful in terms of helping to improve livelihoods. Is it recognizing that increased political polarization as we see it play, seen it play out country by country by country is a serious threat, maybe even an existent, existential threat to a scholar and ID. If countries begin to, to Sort of retrench in terms of their connections with with others outside, you know, that's a problem for us. And is there something that you can be doing in your scholarship to help address that? I think the other direction that I would counsel, uh, really, any mid-career person around, is the recognition that as international business faculty. Ultimately, we have the opportunity to recognize our host, or excuse me, our home institutions as being international business actors. So we have the opportunity to to get better at, to study, to understand how complex organizations function across borders just by looking at our home institution. And I think that for many, very uh, newly seasoned, I should say, scholars who have been successful with their research enterprise, they've often done it with protection from service obligations in their home institution. And I would argue that now is the time for each of them to, again, ask themselves, where can I provide leadership, and provide service in building my home institution as an actor in international business, be it through uh, an array of academic partnerships, be it through media and communication engagement, you know, whatever the format may take, uh, don't, don't shun opportunities to lead and to serve your institution. In fact, I would probably go even stronger. I would say don't shirk those obligations because we're all very fortunate to be in these kinds of, of professional positions. and these organizations don't run without faculty engagement in service. And you know I think that some of the the most exciting opportunities that I've had professionally were, Uh, when I was at George Washington University, working with faculty colleagues to develop our first cyber grant and to launch our cyber center. You know, I did that as a fairly young faculty member with very little resource or very little support, but it gave me the opportunity to meet colleagues across campus, to engage with stakeholders off of our campus um, and to grow personally and professionally in important ways. Um, I never in a million years thought I would be the Dean of a business school. But because of those activities and working with the cyber I got on somebody's radar screen and I was invited to apply for a a very senior academic and administrative position at a school that I admired and had admired for a very long time. you know, it was, it was a big stretch and and certainly a, a shift I hadn't envisioned, but an extraordinary opportunity to be able to serve and lead and to do some things that otherwise I, I wouldn't have had the chance to do. And I think um, those kinds of experiences have, have absolutely helped to strengthen my research and strengthen my ability to be a meaningful and productive teacher with the students that I work with. Uh,
0: Hilda, what's the question that I should have asked you about not
1: I think we covered some pretty good turf there. I think, um, you know, one question you didn't ask me or, or maybe didn't ask me directly, but I think is, is worthy of our, our, at least touching upon, things that I'm really excited about um, currently is the movement here in the U.S. as well as in many other countries around the world to think um, much more carefully and much more forcefully around questions of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusiveness. And I know certainly the, the corporate partners that we work with have these questions very much at the top of their agenda. And it is absolutely clear to me that we as IB researchers and teachers have a lot to bring to that party. So, uh, you know, inherently the, the study of IB is the study of recognizing where differences can be leveraged productively and where similarities that transcend borders can be the source of cohesiveness and and power to be able to mobilize collective action. And I feel as though um, there is an exciting opportunity afoot now for all of us as players in the world of IB to bring this profound expertise that we have in international business to bear at what oftentimes are being couched as very domestic or even very local kinds of initiatives or issues, and recognizing that, that these kinds of contributions might be powerful ways for us to unlock some of the challenges that, that we in society are facing with regards to DNI currently.
0: True, and actually in many institutions, uh, diversity, uh, equity, inclu- inclusion is under the almost the monopoly of OBHR on HR people have claimed it, but you know, That's right. <laughs> it's really our domain. But uh, thank you so much uh, Hilde for this uh, interview. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Take care.